Introducing Coco Golf's signature shoe, more than just a tennis shoe. It's a fusion of 90s inspired style and cutting edge performance technology with its sleek mid cut silhouette. It's designed to enhance speed and power on the court. The multi piece upper construction delivers high energy return for players of all levels. Whether you're a seasoned pro or just starting out, the Coco CG1 empowers you to dominate the game. Learn more and purchase the Coco CG1 at NewBalance.com. Welcome to the Mini Break, your daily podcast for the biggest storylines, results, and controversies from the tennis world. Today is Monday, June 7th. Let's talk about the headliners on today's show as Rafael Nadal, Iga Svantec, and Novak Djokovic all pushed in different ways on day nine of the 2021 French Open. Now, Rafa, Iga, your prohibitive favorites to take home the singles titles this year. And look, neither have dropped a set yet in this event. And yet, we have seen them both tested in particular, whether it was Marta Kostiuk against Iga today or Yannick Sinner against Rafa. Those were both very interesting matches, matches that I think tell us a lot moving forward through the rest of this draw. So I want to break them down. I also have to talk about Novak Djokovic and Lorenzo Musetti. Musetti taking those first two sets, 7-6, unfortunately physically just dropped off after that, and that speaks to the test that is facing Novak Djokovic, but that match provided some entertaining tennis, probably the best tennis I saw all day long, at least through those first two sets. So those will be the three breakdowns. Also have to talk about the continued descent of Maria Sakkari. She reaches her first Grand Slam quarterfinal, and in fact, the 2021 French Open providing a record on the women's side. Six first-time Grand Slam quarterfinalists make the quarterfinal round of the this event. That is an open era record coming from our friend Alex McPherson, the six first time quarterfinalists Zidancic, Bedosa, Rabakina, Krechikova, Goff, and Maria Sakari now added to that list as she dominated defending finalist Sonia Kennan in her fourth round victory. Of course, we'll touch on all of the matches throughout the day as well. Going to leave the day 10 preview, I suppose, in the, in the rear view mirror. I feel like by the time some of you listen to this podcast, that day will have probably already been finished since there are only four matches on that day or leading up to that Medvedev Tsitsipas result. Anyways, today's focus going to be day nine. Of course, we will be back tomorrow to recap day 10. I believe I'm going to drag Jamie McDonald onto that podcast as well because certainly as we get into the quarterfinal action, things heating up. You don't want to just hear my voice. You want to hear a plethora of voices so that you guys have the complete picture of this 2021 French Open. But of course, the reason we're able to do these recap podcasts podcast day in, day out here at Cracked Rackets is because of the support we continue to get from all of you listeners who tune in each and every episode. We are so grateful for that fact, so grateful for our Patreon family who, rest assured, are getting your Patreon match of the day. Today, it was a Medvedev Tsitsipas breakdown. If you want to hear me talk 15 minutes about that match or as well as some of the other matches I'm locked in on day in, day out throughout the professional tennis schedule, uh, become a Patreon member. You can find those segments and more Patreon exclusive content. You can find all of it by going to our website, crackrackets.com. And again, to our Patreon subscribers, eternally grateful for your continued support. And then last, but certainly not least, we can do these podcasts on the mini break day in, day out because of the support we get from our friends at Tennis Point. Now, you've heard me say it all week long, Midwest Sports now known as Tennis Point. It's just cleaner that way. And of course, we talked to Tennis Point Steve Limke to talk about that transition, to talk about some of the new gear best equipment on the market for all of you interested. And of course, you can continue to find the best equipment at the best prices by turning to our friends at Tennis Point. You go to tennis-point.com. That's the symbol, not the spelling. Tennis-point.com. Use our promo code CR15. You'll get 15% off your order. Free two-day shipping on all orders exceeding $75. Best of all, a free can of Wilson Extra Duty Tennis Balls. MidwestSports.com was what it used to be. Now it's tennis-point.com. The promo code still is CR15. But with that in mind, again, let's talk about the headliners. And we'll get to the two title favorites, Iga and Rafa, in a moment. But let's start 
with that Djokovic Musetti match because if you haven't watched Lorenzo Musetti much and this was your first exposure, you likely think this guy's a Grand Slam future or future Grand Slam champion. And you know, I posited this theory on No Challenges Remaining, my friend Ben Rothenberg's show, uh, which I'm sure some of you listen to as well. And you know, I said if you could have the quartet of Sinner. Uh, of Musetti, of Felix Ogier Aliasim, and I said Sebastian Corda at the time, but you probably take Carlos Alcaraz over him versus the quartet of Tsitsipas, Medvedev, Zverev, and throw in a fourth, I suppose Rublev's the guy you got to put in that equation now. Which generation do you take to win more Grand Slams? With their performances here today, the next next gen has staked their claim. And we'll get to the Sinner performance in a moment. But you look for Lorenzo Musetti. It wasn't just this one match. It's been him since the tour resumed back in August. He's 51-24 and 24 over those 52 weeks. That includes runs to a couple of Challenger finals as well as the Challenger title in Forley. Uh, he you know, qualifies in Rome last year, knocks out Stan Nye knocks out Nishikori before getting knocked off by Dom Kopfer. He follows that up uh, again with more challenger success till we get to the start of this year where he comes through qualifying in Acapulco, makes the semifinals there after beating Schwartzman, Tiafo, and Dimitrov. He then goes to Miami, wins a couple of matches before getting knocked out by Chilich. Look at what he did in this clay court season. Was a lot of ATP level action because that's where his ranking afforded him to be. He was now inside the top 100 and rather than going and, you know, padding his stats, going to play challenger matches. He was ready to get thrown into the mix. And you love his decision. You know, he plays Cagliari to start, makes the quarterfinals there, then goes to Monte Carlo, where he did get a wild card, but gets knocked off by Carl. Karatsev in Barcelona, another wild card takes advantage of, beats Lopez before uh, getting knocked off in three by FAA, then goes and plays Madrid qualifying, where he wins his first match, gets knocked off by Carlos Taberner in his second next wild card into Rome. You can understand why the Italian got that one, knocks off Hurkacz before losing to a Riley Opelka that ended up making the semifinals. He then goes to Lyon as an alternate and makes the semifinals there beating FAA, beating Corda before getting knocked off by Tsitsipas. You know, continued to play the clay court events, and you love that decision from him. And I'm sorry to give you the whole uh, schedule here for Lorenzo Musetti, but this speaks to his developmental path. He is playing these events. He is maximizing his opportunities that his ranking now affords him to have. And so he goes to Parma, gets a good first run win against Gianluca Magere before losing to Nishioka. I mean, you look at his draw in his first three rounds, wins over Goffin, Nishioka, and Cecinato, that's earning your way to the fourth round. And you look for Lorenzo Musetti, he's a guy whose ELO ranking via Tennis Abstract is obviously higher than his current ranking. Right now, he's ranked number 76 overall in the ATP rankings. And by the way, you look at it now after his results here, he's into the top 65, currently a new career high of number 61 in the live rankings. You look right now on Tennis Abstract's ELO ratings, he's 47. And I think to that, that speaks to the fact he has been a top 50 level player. You want to look at his ATP results specifically, he's 21-11 and 11 in his last 52 weeks, 9-7 and seven against top 50 opponents, and this gets us to the Musetti-Djokovic match because you saw that level flashed throughout those first two sets, and Djokovic goes up an early break 3-1, and it felt like in that first set, okay, you know, Djokovic isn't phased by the flashiness. He's getting Musetti stretched to the outer third. Musetti's never had someone be able to absorb and redirect his power and really push him on the back foot like this perhaps before, but Lorenzo Musetti responded, and you know Djokovic goes up 40-15 in that 3-1 game. It's a 10-shot rally. Ball skids off the line from Musetti, and Djokovic misses the forehand. 40-30 point, he goes for an inside-in forehand. He misses that one. Okay, fine, you're back to deuce. But what was the momentum changer? Djokovic hits a forehand approach shot down the line to that Musetti backhand. Musetti lasers in on-the-run backhand winner. It looks as pretty as a one-handed backhand should when hit on the run like that. And then on the next point, again, hits a big return, gets the advantage, wins the point, 
gets the break, it's 2-3. We're back on serve. And those are your only two breaks in the first set. And, you know, Musetti had a set point early in the breaker. I think it was 6-5 that Djokovic fights off. And you think, okay, Djokovic has fought that off. And at one point, I think it was 30-40. Djokovic hits three big first serves to erase those break points later on in the first set. And you're like, all right, Djokovic seems to have this. But Lorenzo Musetti kept swinging. And you look for his numbers in the first set of this match. I mean, set number one in particular, uh, he hit 12 winners against 14 unforced errors. And if you saw the match, you know how aggressively he was playing. The fact that he only hit 12 winners is a fact that Novak Djokovic gets his racket on everything. Um, but Musetti minimized his errors to being only a minus two ratio against Novak freaking Djokovic, who hits 15 winners against 20 unforced errors. That's a testament to how consistent Musetti was, how relentless he was. And look, he only made 51% of his first serves, but he won 64% of those first serve points, 62% of his second serve points. Djokovic was actually playing the more effective plus one tennis than Musetti in that first set. He was 26 of 32 on first serve points, but 5 of 16 on second serve points, and those second serve points seem to come in the tiebreaker in particular, and Musetti capitalized on his opportunity to hit through big returns, to be aggressive, go inside out with his forehand, not be afraid of Novak Djokovic's backhand wing. He also hit some of the most ridiculous inside-in forehands, where he hit them almost as short angles inside-in, and you're like, how is that possible? That speaks to, again, his creativity and his creativity. I don't know why I emphasize the viti, uh, but his, it speaks to his creativity. It speaks to, just again, his racket talent. The guy can swing through a f-ing tennis ball. It is truly impressive, but, you know, again, those that's set number one set number two he goes up in early break three one and you think to yourself oh is this is just an off day for Djokovic and off comes the hat for Novak Djokovic and immediately he steps up his game and uh you know gets the break right back and Musetti kind of blinked because he committed I think it was like three unforced errors in that game and then Djokovic holds for three I think actually that was the game where he was down 30-40 and hits three big first serves and now it's 30 all and you think okay Djokovic has reasserted his control in this match but no those are your only two breaks of serve in the second set as well and then you get to the breaker and Musetti played a better breaker than Djokovic and Djokovic you know his first serve kind of let him down in that tie breaker again and, and Musetti capitalized taking a couple of big cuts at second serve return Uh, But it was a 7-2 second set breaker. And now all of a sudden, Musetti is up two sets to love on Novak freaking Djokovic. And to be honest, he outplayed him. Like you look at the ratios, uh, you know, again, comparatively, uh, you know, Musetti's hit, I think, minus four uh, in terms of total winner to unforced error ratios. And then, uh, you know, Djokovic was minus eight. So like Musetti played him even. In terms of that, you look at the zero to four shot rallies. Musetti was minus five on those, but he was a little bit better on the longer rallies over those sets. He was plus eight. And so Musetti outplayed Novak Djokovic. Djokovic didn't, you know, as good as the plus one game was for Djokovic, he, when Musetti was landing first serves, Musetti was able to play on his terms. He was able to take aggressive cuts, mix in the drop shots, do the things he was able to do. And to to capture that level for even two sets is absolutely a net positive for Lorenzo Musetti moving forward. But then we got to sets three, four, and five. And best of five sets is the ultimate test. And that's why it's at the Grand Slams, because to win the sport's biggest prizes, you should have to go through the ultimate test. And while I understand the appeal of no ad scoring and the appeal of two out of three sets and the idea of not, you know, are fans truly attracted to a product that lasts over three and a half hours unless they are the diehards of the sport? It's a good question to ask, and it's a question worth discussing. At the same time, do you want to know why best of five is appealing? It's because of this. It's because, okay, Musetti did it for two sets, but could he do it for three, four, and five? And the answer to that question was no. And in the end, Djokovic, 6-1, 6-love, 4-love in those last three sets. And look, Novak Djokovic didn't play his best match. You look at the stats overall, and of course, they're skewed by the uh, by those last three sets. But he made 70% of his first serves, you know, fine. The, that all he really had to do towards the end was make a first serve, then hit a forehand to the open court or hit his you know, first ball to the open court. 
you know, 54% on his second serve, but that second serve was very attackable in sets one and two. And, you know, 25 of 39 at the net, okay, whatever. 53 winners against 42 unforced errors. Again, all of that skewed by the back half of this match. The key for him was he got tested physically. And I think that's the big thing moving forward is Djokovic had cruised through his first few matches. You look for him, you know, straight set wins over Sandgren, Cuevas, and Barankis. This was a test physically, and I actually think it was good if you're a Djokovic fan that Novak didn't play his best tennis because now he under, you know, it's a little, not that he ever needs help getting motivated, but that is extra motivation. I just lost two tiebreakers to an 18-year-old. What did I do wrong? What didn't I execute? And watching Djokovic play, there are a lot of, of missed second serve returns. I can point to five or six in that first set where if you're playing Nadal or even Berrettini in the quarterfinals, you just can't afford to miss those opportunities on second serve points and start them off with an unforced error. Even if you're taking a little bit off the ball, uh, you just can't afford to make those errors because you can't give a server of Berrettini's quality and you can't give someone as relentless as Nadal those sorts of free points. I think the first serve execution was a plus for Novak Djokovic. His plus one game was on against Musetti, and he had to be aggressive with that first strike because if he wasn't, now you're on you're playing Musetti's terms where he's going to go down the line first, and he's going to have you on your back foot, and he's going to mix in the drop shot. And Djokovic did a really good job of not allowing Musetti to do that. He was only broken twice in the match despite losing those first two sets. That was a net positive for Djokovic as well. But there are things to clean up. And I thought, you know, his game was good, not great. And the thing is, obviously, to beat Rafael Nadal, you have to play great on a clay court. And he did, hasn't played that great match yet. And I actually think that's a good thing because it means he hasn't peaked. And it means that peak is still hopefully available to him in these last few matches of the event. Certainly, he's going to need to raise his game against Berrettini, who's just going to apply a little more relentless pressure. But perhaps that simplifies the game for Djokovic. Musetti just keeps you on your back foot, keeps you so off balance. Again, those first two sets, a testament to his performance as much as it was to anything Novak Djokovic wasn't doing. But in the end, Djokovic advances 6-7, 6-7, 6-1, 6-love, 4-love via retirement. There was a little bit of a scandal afterwards. Musetti saying, could I have kept playing? Maybe, but, you know, I, I don't think I was injured. I just, I couldn't play on or whatever. He's an 18-year-old kid. I don't, I don't have any particularly strong thoughts on that. It was a moment of honesty. Like, isn't that what we ask of these athletes, to be honest? I'm not going to criticize him for being honest and the honest takeaway, again, is he outplayed Djokovic in those two tiebreakers. He outplayed him in sets one and two, and that is a huge step forward for the young Italian who, excuse me, just turned 19 years old at the start of March. And look, the best is only yet to come. He's inside the top 65 of the live rankings. I don't anticipate barring an injury. He will drop out of them anytime soon. But if you're a Djokovic fan, he advances, and ultimately, that's what matters because we all hope we get the shot to see that Djokovic-Nadal matchup. And speaking of which, let's just get to Rafa next. Um, this was a scary good performance for Rafael Nadal. And why now, you know, should there be that semifinal matchup barring, you know, Djokovic hitting another level against Berrettini, which he very well could I'm leaning towards Rafael Nadal because for Djokovic, it was a steady game plan for him. You know, I don't think his level deviated too much from start to finish in this match. That, you know, again, the result, Musetti taking the first two sets, as I just laid out, had a lot to do with the level Lorenzo Musetti was playing at. Nadal's level got not only just noticeably better, but the numbers reflected as well. He just clearly did not start this match out as well as he wanted to, and then by the end of this match, he was firing on all cylinders, and that is a scary note for anyone else still remaining in this men's singles draw as he advances with a 7-5, 6-3, win over Yannick Sinner. Let's start with what went well for Sinner. Goes down to love early break of serve in the first set, and you start to think to yourself, oh, it's just going to be another typical day at the office for Nadal. The youngster's going to blink. He's not going to have the level to match the relentlessness of Nadal, who clearly wasn't playing his best to start. And then Sinner goes on a run, and he wins four straight games to take a 4-2 lead. And when I say Yannick Sinner was hitting through Rafael Nadal during that four-game win streak, that is not hyperbole. Sinner played excellent. 
and he executed in a flawless game plan as well. And look, when Rafa's leaving the ball short, as he was in those first six games, and the key words there is those first six games, because as I led this segment with, Rafa's level got better and better as this match progressed. But Sinner did exactly what you needed to do. He didn't let the Rafa forehand get deep into the court. He took the ball early, took it down the line, just kept changing direction on Rafa because the last thing you can do on Rafa is hit the ball in the same spot twice in the row. If you do that, now you're starting to play Rafa's patterns. Now he's going to be the one moving you around the court. Sinner was on his front foot. He was taking the ball early. He was ripping down the line. He hit this one forehand down the line winner in the game he held, I believe, for 5-3, where you're just like, what? What? What is that? It was Del Potro-esque in the way it just ripped through the court. Even Rafa didn't Rafa didn't even move for it. And Rafa tries to track down everything. And Rafa was like, nope, not getting that one. Yannick played outstanding tennis. And I have to say, the statistician, this is the first time the Roland Garros website has let me down because the numbers say Sinner only hit three winners to 25 unforced errors. I don't think that's true. And unfortunately, it is true that Rafa gets his racket on a ton of balls to disrupt what would otherwise be a clean winner. Uh, but Sinner was the one dictating in those first six games. Again, taking the ball early, even when you know his first serve, he didn't serve particularly great, only made 58% of his first serves. But whether it was first serve, second serve, he was taking big cuts at the ball. Whenever he got a look at a rock, a second serve, he knows, hey, I got to take that ball early. I got to tee off. And now I need to be the aggressor in this rally. And, you know, he held Rafa to a 47% win percentage on Rafa's second serve. Now, you know, when Rafa was able to play plus one forehand tennis, get Sinner stretched as he was able to do as the set went on, he looked like Rafa freaking adult. He goes 15 of 18 on first serve points in this set. Now, only made 55% of his first serves in set number one, but ends the match with a 58% win percentage, uh, 58% make percentage on first serves that speak to the fact speaks to the fact his first serve got better and better as this match progressed the number to me that stands out for Yannick Sinner is the net points 8 of 17 at the net he floated a lot of volleys and he had the sort of decisiveness and the firepower to create real opportunities for himself at the net and you know Rafa of course put so much pressure on you with his first passing shot just so much topspin dips that ball so low if not getting it just straight up by you and it's really it's a lot easier to sit here talking on a podcast and say Sinner's got to do more with the first volley because God knows how difficult it must be to try and make a volley off of a Rafael Nadal passing shot. But you also can't deny Sinner floated a lot of first volleys, gave Rafa looks at second passes, and you cannot give Rafael Nadal a second passing shot in a rally because that ball is going by you. Um, But that was a noticeable thing, particularly in the first set, particularly, again, it felt like that 5-3 service game for Rafa, Sinner had a better chance than the service game at 5-4, where I believe he got broken at love and made a couple of forehand errors. One of them just tried to pull the trigger down the line early in a rally, love 15. It was a good shot, bad execution. Uh, You know, love, on two of the points, Rafa kind of got returned deep on his body and it drew Sinner errors. And then, Sinner overcooked an approach shot. And just like that's the aggression he had to play with because Rafa was starting to find his form. That forehand was getting deeper and deeper in the court. And instead of being able to take his backhand inside the baseline, Sinner started to have to take his backhand three, four, five feet behind the baseline. But then Rafa found his patterns. And ultimately, he breaks Sinner at 5-4 for 5-all and takes, I believe, eight consecutive games to take a four-love lead in that second set. And it's a credit to Sinner, who then did find another gear and did fight back. I believe it was three straight games for Sinner to get that set back on serve to 4-3. But then Rafa started cruising again. And it's just the relentless pressure Rafa puts on you. And I'm not telling any of you anything different, but forehand cross, forehand cross, forehand down the line. You think you're being clever as a right-handed player and hitting your backhand down the line. Well, Rafa's going to hit his backhand right back down the line at you. Or if you think you're cheating over because you're anticipating that, he's going to rip a backhand cross court. And Rafa looked really good at the net in this match. He was 12 of 13 on net points. And you look for him in terms of the match rally breakdowns. He won, you know, was plus 20 on the 0-4 to four shot rallies. He won 46. That's a testament to when he finds a four, first forehand, you're screwed. Uh, dare I say you're f***ed because it's just 
the point is over. He's either going to go behind you or he's going to go where you're not, and good luck tracking that ball down. And now he's at the net where he's gotten better and better in his career. And, you know, he was plus 15 on the 5-8 to eight shot rallies. He was plus 4 on the 9-plus shot rallies. He's just better than everyone at everything on a clay court. And he flashed that today against Yannick Sinner. He did improve his level because, again, Sinner was the better player through the first six games of the first set. Sinner served for that first set, but the moment that opportunity went by the wayside, it was all Rafa the rest of the way. He just, you know, that ball just rips through uh, these clay courts, and his ability to throw just elevated junk at you as well. I'll never uh, cease to be amazed by his ability to hit an on-the-stretch slice that just, you know, drops its way right on the baseline and resets the point to neutral because you hope as the player it was floating long, so you let it bounce, but it never seems to float long. Rafa's finding his form. And again, this is the first time I really locked in on a on a Nadal on a Nadal. Hey, great shot and Djokovic match, and wanted to watch it from start to finish. And just if we're being honest, Nadal looked better than Djokovic. His peak, and I think this was the first time he really hit his peak in this event. Uh, his peak has been better than Djokovic's peak thus far. That being said, Djokovic, get, Djokovic gets a really tough test in Berrettini. He's going to have to raise his level, and this is why, if you're a Djokovic fan, I'm still, I'm not saying I'm still, but if I'm assuming the mindset of a Djokovic fan, I'm still holding out hope because I don't think we've seen Djokovic's peak yet, and I think if he's able to find the level he had, you know, even earlier in the tournament, earlier in some of the warm-up events on clay, that peak is still at absolutely high enough to challenge Nadal, who still looks a little shaky on serve, but the rest of the game has clearly caught up to where it needs to be. The Djokovic-Nadal collision is, seems imminent in those semifinals. Though That's my status report on where those two headline players stand heading into the quarterfinal round. And again, for Djokovic, he's got Berrettini, who advanced with the walkthrough result. Who's your trusted source when it comes to your facility questions, concerns, and needs? Ours is Hard True, the world's largest manufacturer of tennis court surfaces, equipment, and accessories for over 90 years. Partner with their trusted team of experts, along with collegiate greats Jamie Loeb, Alex Rybakov, and Dustin Taylor to bring the service provider of over 30 professional events annually to your facility. Whether it's the red clay of the Houston ATP, the green clay courts of the Charleston WTA, or the official hard court of World Team Tennis, Hard True has you covered. If you're looking to build a court, convert a hard court to clay, or simply resurface your hard court, work together with Hard True in their mission to lead the tennis industry by creating better places to play. To learn more about their state-of-the-art surfaces, along with their catalog customizable on-court accessories, check out hardtrue.com or call 877-442-7878 today. That's hardtrue.com or 877-442-7878 today. I suppose we can just knock out all of the final men's results at this point in terms of Schwartzman versus uh, Jan Leonard Struff. You know, Struff was up, I believe, 5-1 in that first set. I believe had five uh, set points in that first set as well. But once Schwartzman took it in a breaker, 11-9 breaker there, it, it did feel like that sort of broke Struff's spirit. And just, you know, the rest of the way, Schwartzman put a lot of pressure on him, and there were a couple of exchanges of breaks in both the second and third sets, but it was a 7-6-6-4-7-5 win for Schwartzman, and you look for him, you know, again, he and Rafa are the only two guys in the men's singles draw who have yet to drop a set in this event. Now, you know, the draw could not have gone better for Diego Schwartzman. You look at who he's been able to play and beat to get to this quarterfinal round. I mean, if I told him before the tournament, listen, you're going to have to face uh, Randy Liu, then you're going to get Bedene, then you're going to get Cole Schreiber, then you're going to get Struff. He just said, sign me up for that right now. I don't care. He'd be like, yes, give me all of the struggles during the warm-up events, but then give me that 
that draw to find my form uh, to reach the quarterfinals. And now he's got Rafa, where obviously everything becomes that much more accentuated. You have to be lasered in physically. You have to be, you know, locked in in terms of with your ground strokes. You got to be able to take risks, go down the line. You can't be afraid to suffer a little bit physically as well and understand, look, I'm tracking down that extra ball against him just for so there's any sort of payoff in the fifth set. And you look for Schwartzman, he's been good, not great in terms of his numbers on serve. You look for him in this match against Struff. I mean, the big thing, he made 73% of his first serves, which certainly beats the alternative of having to play on the second serve points. But most importantly, he pressured Struff's second serve. Struff, 25 of 63 on second serve points. Schwartzman, 8 of 15 on his break point chances. 34 winners against 35 unforced errors. Did a great job of just putting that pressure on Struff, getting him to the outer third, making Struff feel like I got to go big down the line here because I just can't get a ball by this guy. And you look via the rally analysis, you know, Struff was a little bit better in the zero to four shot rallies. He was plus four, but that that number was only plus four speaks to Schwartzman's ability to move his plus one ball around the court. And then, you know, you look for him elsewhere. He was six plus nine is 15. He was plus 15 in the five plus shot rallies. He extended those rallies, uh, you know, past Jan Leonard's first strike. And then it was all Schwartzman from there. He advances in straight sets. Obviously, we saw Schwartzman beat Nadal last year in the warm-up event to Roland Garros. Played a really fun match against Nadal in the semifinals as well. Now, that was ultimately a match Nadal, I believe, won in straight sets. But there will be a little bit of belief for Diego Schwartzman, who just by virtue of making this quarterfinal, A, there's the I-got-nothing-to-lose factor that you always have when you're playing Rafa at Roland Garros, and that gives you a freedom as an opponent that you can't replicate anywhere else, but, you know, part B, he's got nothing to lose. Like, of course, Rafa does everything a little bit better than Diego Schwartzman on a clay court and probably on any surface as well, but Diego's going to scrap, and you do look physically, he hasn't dropped the set, and so, you know, he did get the physical test, comes back from a 5-1 deficit against Struff in that first set and was out on court for a couple of hours. And, you know, again, that's the sort of test you want. But he also didn't drop a set, which means he wasn't out there for that additional third, fourth hour of play. He's about as fresh as you could ask to be entering a match against Nadal in the quarterfinal round. Can he survive physically? That's certainly the question. Again, I'm a question I will be sure to pose on tomorrow's podcast as we preview it all. But those were your three men's results. Djokovic, five-set victory over Musetti, Nadal, straight sets over Sinner, and then a Schwartzman, straight set win over Struff. Of course, Berrettini receives the withdrawal from Roger Federer. Let's switch gears now, though, and talk about the women's side. And the place we got to start is Iga Sviantek. 10 straight matches now for Iga without dropping a set. Let me repeat that. 10 straight matches for her in Paris without dropping a set. She's been dominant. And the scary thing is, again, it feels like she's yet to play her best match because, you know, that first set against Annette Conteve was really, really good. 7-6 to Sviantek ended up taking it. That had a lot to do with Conteve's level of play. She wasn't missing backhands on the day. She was swinging freely, connecting with everything so well. Uh, and yet Iga still beat her. And Iga made only like 50% of her first serves in that first set and struggled to find her rhythm early on before just, you know, digging deep, making the match physical, extending those rallies, five, six, seven shots. In this match against Marta Kostyuk, again, this scoreline, three and four, seems like a straightforward Iga victory. It wasn't. Kostyuk played really good tennis in this match, and you look at the numbers overall for Marta Kostyuk, 20 winners against 27 unforced errors. She made 61% of her first serves, uh, created seven breakpoint chances for herself, fought off eight of the 12 breakpoint chances she faced. On the surface, those are all really good numbers, and yet... Iga's still just better at everyone uh, than everyone at everything. On a clay court, she only made 56% of her first serves, which again feels like a low-hanging fruit of why we haven't seen her best match yet. Is I've yet to see that 65%, 70% first serve percentage number where everything's just clicking for her on that day. But she still won 74% of her first serve points, and that speaks to the importance of playing first strike tennis against Marta Kostiuk, who... Also, much like Elena Rybakina, 
she's got golfing privileges at Serena Williams Power Tennis Country Club. You just can't deny it. It takes two seconds. Her ability to step up on a Sviantec second serve, absorb that kick, and just turn fully into that ball and rip a return winner. I mean, Iga was 14 of 30 on second serve points. And, you know, for Kostyuk, she won 57% of her first serve points, which against Iga at this point feels like a massive victory. Um, And look, I mean, you look at the rally numbers, uh, Kostyuk played Sviantek essentially even on the five-plus shot rallies. It was, you know, 32 uh, total for Kostyuk to a 34 number for Sviantek, and that just speaks to the skill level of uh, Marta Kostyuk, her ability. She moved sneaky well on these clay courts, and her ability to just keep making an extra ball and put a little bit of pressure on Iga is what made this match feel so close. At the same time, you know, you want to make an extra ball against Iga Sviantek? Okay, that's one more opportunity for her to rip you off the court, cross court, and rip a winner to the open court, and just do all of these little things that she seems to do so well. And you look for Iga, that is why she ended up winning this match, because you wanted to extend her backhand cross-court rallies? Fine, she's going to rip a cross-court angle that just is ridiculous. You want to try and pressure that forehand with pace, with which, uh, you know, I would say Kostyuk did with a fair amount of success? Fine, Iga's going to rip that ball cross-court, take advantage of the open space, take the ball early, move forward. She could, She can just do a little bit of everything in a match where, you know, Kostyuk put her under so much pressure. She still hit 24 winners against only 22 unforced errors. And, you know, I I just think Iga's game is so complete at this stage of her career, and that's what's so impressive. You know, you look for Marta Kostyuk at this run, and again, 33-16 and in her last 52 weeks. She's winning two-thirds of her matches. That's what a breakthrough looks like. You look at the live rankings with this result. Kostyuk now inside the top 70 for the first time in her career. She's at number 65. It's funny, an interesting pairing right there. 18-year-old Marta Kostyuk, number 65. 18-year-old Leila Fernandez, number 66. Those are two names we are going to be talking about a lot over the next decade. Because Kostyuk's power and her results are real. And yeah, you know, in terms of the draw, she had an injured Muguruza in round one. She still wins that match. And then there was no wavering. You know, she follows it up with straight set victories over Sai Sai Zhang and Vavara Gracheva, who she was favorites against. And, you know, that power tennis she plays, it's on her terms. There were moments of this match where she was hitting through Iga Sviantek. The problem was it was only moments. And it's just so hard to keep that sort of sustained pressure against Iga, who is the most fluid player in the outer thirds of the court. She's surpassed Halep for me and surpassed Barty in terms of just her movement on the clay. It's the best of anyone in the women's game right now. Her ability to turn defense into offense. Again, her flexibility and fluidity on that outer third backhand to take it cross court to go down the line and her ability to sometimes choose to you know take an inside in backhand instead of hitting a forehand but if you leave time on the forehand side of her you know the pace and the whip she puts on that ball she is the clear-cut favorite as we said and the you know again her results I suppose the only thing that can slow Iga down is it's been a tough draw for her. Kaya Yuvon first round is not an easy task there. Obviously, that's one of her closest friends, someone she knows so well. You know, Rebecca Pedersen, fine. That was the gimme in round two. But then Kanteve, Kostyuk, and now Maria Sakari, who I want to talk about next in terms of her victory over Sonia Kennan because she looked dominant. It's a really tough draw for Iga. And then after that, you know, she'd get the winner of Goff Krejcikova. Goff has been one of the 10 best players in women's tennis this season. I'll make the case for that in a little bit. Uh, but it is a tough, you know, the, the easiest matches for Iga Sviantek might legitimately be her second round match and then her match in the final against one of Pavlochenkova or uh, Zdancic. I guess I am recording this on a Tuesday just so you all know. Um Those might be her, like, again, on paper, that might be her second easiest match. Like, and that's a crazy thing to say uh, because it's going to be tough sledding for Iga. There's going to be no denying, while she might be the prohibitive favorite, if she wins this title, she'll have certainly earned it. But again, she was just, she was a little bit better than Kostyuk at everything. Now, Kostyuk's coming. She's going to be in the top 50 soon, and then she's not going to drop out of it for a very long time. But Iga was just too good today. She advances to, funnily enough, only her second Grand Slam quarterfinal, but 
her second consecutive quarterfinal in Paris. And again, 10 straight victories, 20 straight sets won for her at the French Open. Simply silly, silly stuff. But with that in mind, let's talk about her next opponent, Maria Sakkari, who we have spent a lot of time talking about on this mini-break podcast of late because she's been one of the 10 players that have mattered since the tours resumed since uh, in August. You look for Maria Sakkari, 31-14 and 14 in her last 52 weeks. That's that 69% number when you're hovering around 70 or over two-thirds of your matches won. You're moving up in the rankings, and she certainly is. She's at a new career high of number 18, uh, which to be honest, I still think is a little bit low for her. And she's sitting at that career high still in the live rankings. One more win gets her up to number 17, one spot behind Elisa Mertens, who, you know, seem linked in terms of their ascent in the women's game, as well as perhaps their ceilings. But, you know, I think the ceiling for Maria Sakkari continues to raise, uh, be raised higher and higher, and I've talked about it before. She's one of the few players you look, and Jeff Sackman wrote about this for Tennis Abstract after we talked about it on the pod. Um, I don't know why I had to frame it like that, but it was I appreciated him taking a thought through to the finish line. Uh, she's one of the few players whose imp- like, who's improves... Ha- improvements you can notice via the eye test, but they've also matched up in the numbers as well. Her first serve win percentage, and for Maria Sakkari, that's always going to be the thing that, you know, defines her ceiling is can she win enough free points? Because certainly physically, she can hold the test. She's so dynamic moving across surfaces, and, you know, again, she's so comfortable in the outer thirds, generating power in those outer thirds, her ability to turn defense into offense, her comfort level moving forward. All of those things continue to improve, but her second serve and her first serve have felt attackable at times. Well, her first serve win percentage has steadily improved over the past five seasons. You look at the numbers for Sakri, they've gone from, you know, a first serve win percentage of 59.8% back in 2017 uh, to 63.7, 65.3, 66.5, and 67.2. That's moved her from a bottom 10 server in the Tennis Abstract Top 50 leaderboard to now number 15. And, or excuse me, number 17. And that's a respectable number to be when you're a top 10 returner as well. She is one of those players who fits in the 2020 club, or excuse me, I guess by hold percentage, she's 21. So she would fit in the 21-21 club, one of only seven players to do so. Um, that speaks to just how well-rounded her game is and how that athleticism translates regardless of the surface. And to be honest, Sonia Kennan, who didn't play her best match, let's be clear, but didn't have a weapon really to hurt Sakari with Sans her taking second serves of Sakari's early and trying to go big with her cuts on the return. And that's where she had her most success. As you look for Sakari, she was 9 of 25 on her second serve points, winning only 36% of them. But she was 21 of 25 on first serve points. And when Sakari was able to play first strike, didn't matter if it was the forehand or the backhand wing, she had control of the point. Whenever she was eight able to get Kennan on her back foot. She never relinquished that position. And again, she's going to have to make more than 50% of her first serves to beat Iga Sviantek. But her ability to play first strike, her ability to when Kennan got into her patterns and when Kennan was landing first serves and she only made 48% of her own first serves, but it didn't really matter. You look on return points, you know, Sakari was 33 of 58 overall. She won 57% of her total return points in this match because she was able to withstand everything Kennan threw at her and turn that defense into offense to hit the elevated defensive shot up the line to get things back to neutral or, you know, make that on-the-run slice that just got the ball deep at Kennan's feet that she couldn't do much with. And, you know, then... Again, whenever Kennan would leave her something in the center of the court, she was able to swing through that ball, play aggressively. You look at the various uh, rally lengths, you know, Sakari beat Kennan in everything. She was plus 12 in the 0-4 to four shot rallies and plus 7 in the 5-plus shot rallies. She just was able to play first strike. She was able to withstand first strike. She showed off her complete game uh, in this match, was even 7 of the 10 at the net, 19 winners against 15 unforced errors versus Kennan, who did begin to feel the need to press, particularly with her return of serve. 14 winners for Kennan against 32 unforced errors. Sakari just beat her. 
And you look for Maria Sakkari, again, the results of late at the slams. You know, this is quarterfinal for her at the French Open. She lost first round Australian Open last year, uh, this year to Kiki Mladenovic in three sets. That was a set a match she won a six-love second set in. And, of course, that came after a deep run for her in Abu Dhabi. But, you know, outside of that, was third-round French Open last year, lost three sets to Trevisan. Fourth-round U.S. Open last year, lost three sets to Serena. Fourth-round Australian Open last year, lost three sets to Kvitova. In 2019, it was third-round loss to Barty, second-round loss to Sinyakova, third-round loss to Svitolina, third-round loss to Barty at the Slams as well. You've had to be really good to beat Maria Marie, uh, Sakkari at these Grand Slams over these past you know three seasons. And that's what a top 20 player looks like, is you're guaranteeing yourself in the final 32 of these Grand Slam fields, and depending on the draw, you find yourself in a fourth rounder. In this case, for Sakari beating Mertens and Kennan, she now finds herself in a quarterfinal. Those are two big wins for her, and you look for Maria Sakari in her career. She's just been pretty good across every surface. 55% win percentage on hard courts in tour-level matches, 59% on clay, 57% overall. You look for her in total against top 50 opponents. Uh, she, I mean, overall, let's see, against top 50, she's uh, 54 and 56 against top 20 opponents. She's 23 and 37. But again, if you filter out some of the noise, a lot of losses that came early in her career, she lost eight of her first nine. So you take those out of the, qua- the equation right away. She's 22 and 29. That sounds a lot better. And then, you know, again, you filter in now for top 10 opponents. She's 13 and 16 in her career against top 10 opponents. She gives everyone a tough battle because that athleticism just translates and she puts a lot of different pressure on you. That first serve becoming a weapon, affording her a few easier points, makes her that much more of a threat. Sakari Sviantek, this is what I'm saying. It doesn't stop for Sviantek. Another tough match for her. She's the favorite because she's got the bigger weapons. And again, she can match Sakari's athleticism on these clay courts. But it's going to be a fun one. If she doesn't play her best tennis, the the level we're seeing from Sakari right now is certainly good enough to get the job done. Sakari earns the straight set win over Sonia Kennan to advance to her first Grand Slam quarterfinal. You know, again, that was the headline match. The headline matches, excuse me, Sviantek, Kostyuk, and Sakari Kennan, I thought, on the women's side yesterday. Although, of course... You know, you did have Coco Goff 3-1 win over Own Jabour. Coco Goff now into her first career Grand Slam quarterfinal, first of what will assuredly be many. I mean, she just continues to be good at everything. It's 66% first serve percentage. She won 81% of her first serve points. You like that number? How about the fact that she was 10 of 14 on second serve points? How about the fact that she didn't face a single break point in the match and was 4 of 11 on her own break points? 15 winners against 9 unforced errors was efficient enough to get the job done. And look, this was not the best performance from Own Jabour, who just didn't seem to have much left in the tank. And she's played a ton of tennis of late, but Coco Golf took it to her. And she put so much pressure just by getting that return deep in the center of the court, not opening up angles for Jabour to start to impose her variety. And whenever Jabour turned to drop shot, Goff had an answer for that drop shot, was able to track it down, put her you know, approach shot deep in the court. She's comfortable moving forward. 13 of 17 at the net in this one as well. Her game is just so well-rounded. And you know, again, it's all starting to click for her. The physicality needed to succeed at the highest levels of the WTA. Well, she's got it now. And the first served as a weapon to create free points for yourself. She's got that now. The variety to be able to make opponents who play first strike tennis uncomfortable. And the, again, the speed and movement capability to absorb a first strike and redirect that ball. She's got that skill set as well. This is why everyone's been uh, so high on her on her game. And then, of course, the mindset. She was so calm and collected and poised. And that's just her calling card. In every match she plays, she seems to just, and I know this is such a cliche thing, but it's amazing how many players you talk to who are just out there to make a living, who know they're very gifted as tennis players, and that's why they do it. And I'm not saying all of them are like that. I'm not even saying the majority of them are like that, but there are a lot of them who are like that because it is such a grind and it is so taxing to be out there alone. And we've talked about that that so much throughout this uh, two-week stretch of Roland Garros, but you know, Coco Goff no one enjoys the moment, relishes it, and thrives in it. 
more than her. And she's just built for this occasion. She Again, it's the first of many quarterfinals for her. She's yet to drop a set in her victories uh, thus far. And obviously the Jen Brady, she got a retirement in the third round. And she took it to Own Jabor here in the round of 16. And she's got a very winnable nat- match now against Barbara Krechakova, who just out-hit Sloane Stevens. And I have to say, this was... The, the the worst performance for Stevens in this French Open. Still a huge net positive. And go back two days ago if you want to hear my thoughts on why Sloane Stevens has looked so good at this French Open. But Krechakova just took it to her. It was a 6-2-6 love victory. And you look for Barbara Krechakova now. You know, that decision for her to go play in Strasbourg in the week leading up to this event, such a, such a smart decision. She wins the title there. And that momentum has carried into this event where now she's gotten wins over Sloane, Svitolina, Alexandrova, and Kristina Pliskova. And you look overall for her. That's nine straight victories uh, for her, and she's 40-16 and 16 overall in her last 52, and it's come across surfaces. The final she made in Dubai, plus the final and title she won in Strasbourg. Now quarterfinals here in Roland Garros. She made round of 16 Roland Garros last year as well before getting knocked out by Pororoska. And you talk about what's so amazing for Krejcikova, who was struggling with injuries and playing her way back. You know, she was playing 25Ks in September of last year and lost quarter quarterfinals to Zarazua, quarterfinals to Kolodziovic, uh, Zilova, and then withdrew from Grace Min. Since that, she has just been stellar. Again, 40-16 and 16 in her last 52. You look in just tour-level matches, she's 33-13, and 13, and I mean wins over players like Svitolina, Alexandrova, Kennan, Sakari, Ostapenko, Rybakina, Teichman. She's played outstanding tennis of late, and more importantly, you look at the names that have beaten her. Iga twice, Muguruza, you know, Bedosa, Jennifer Brady, Alexandrova. You've got to be really good to beat Krechakova. She's back where she belongs, up to number 33, which is her career high. You look with this result now in the live rankings, Krechakova up to a new career high of number 29. The 25-year-old is peaking. And by the way, she's still alive in both the mixed and women's doubles draw as well. Confidence breeds confidence, and that is what she has right now. Krechikova versus Goff is going to be very fun because certainly uh, Krechikova has the sort of weapon in her forehand. It's a big backswing in that forehand, but she generates a lot of pace and direction with that shot, and she's going to have the opportunity to put some pressure on Goff. That said, you know, if Goff can make a high percentage of first serves as she has, particularly to that forehand wing, I mean, Krechikova is such a good returner. You can see the double skill set, but she can she has the sort of pace on her serve to give Krechikova's forehand some problems, and she has the pace in general on her ground strokes to keep Krechikova on her back foot, and she's also, again, going to be able to dip some passing shots low at Krechikova's feet. That said, Krechikova's hands at the net, so impressive. This is a really fun contrast of styles, really fun matchup on our hands, and, you know, again, six first-time quarterfinalists, that's a record in the open era uh, at any women's Grand Slam. That's what we have at the 2021 French Open. To recap those quarterfinals quickly for you on both sides, just to, we know what we have to work with. You know, it's Zverev taking on Davidovich Fokina, Tsitsipas versus Medvedev on Tuesday, and then on Wednesday, you get Djokovic taking on Berrettini, Schwartzman versus Nadal. That's about as ideal of a field as we could have asked for on the women's side. You know, the fact that it's Rabakina, Pavlchenkova, Zdancic, Bedos, Jaber, that's the chaos we've come to expect from the bottom half, and then those top half matches, Goff versus Krechakova, Sviantek versus Sakari. It's shaping up to be a fantastic home stretch of this 2021 French Open. And of course, if you have missed out on any of the action, you can catch up on it all on our website, crackrackets.com. You need the more immediate updates Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, YouTube. We are at crackrackets. You want to message me directly? I am at Great Shot Pod. A shout out, as always, to our super producers, Max Fligner and Daniel Westoff, for the <laughs> of an editing job they do day in, day out. A shout out as well to our friends at Tennis Point. Remember, tennis point.com. The promo code is CR. R15. With that in mind, for our wonderful super producers, Fliegner and Westoff, our friends at Tennis Point, and from all of us here at both Cracked Rackets and the Tennis Channel Podcast Network, I'm your host, Alex Gruskin. You know what we say. That's the break. We'll see you all tomorrow. Thanks, everyone.
Introducing Coco Golf's signature shoe, more than just a tennis shoe. It's a fusion of 90s-inspired style and cutting-edge performance technology with its sleek mid-cut silhouette. It's designed to enhance speed and power on the court. The multi-piece upper construction delivers high-energy return for players of all levels. Whether you're a seasoned pro or just starting out, the Coco CG1 empowers you to dominate the game. Learn more and purchase the Coco CG1 at newbalance.com. 